welcome to Scarlet Tavern. Grab a drink, take a seat, and let's begin. Today we're diving in, into the enigmatic and scandalous demise of none other than the man, the myth, the mustachioed movie mogul, William Desmond Taylor. Get ready for a cinematic roller coaster filled with intrigue, drama, and more plot twists than a Hollywood blockbuster on steroids. This is Scarlet Tavern, Mead, Murder, and More. Alright, so, um, yeah, this this one's going to release a little bit later than normal. Uh, most of our, our stuff releases at 8 a.m., but um, we, uh, due to some scheduling conflicts because of the holidays coming up, we had to delay this, but um, yeah, let's get started on William Desmond Taylor. Probably one of the most well-known directors from the uh, early days of Hollywood. Yeah. So, William Desmond Taylor was a prominent Irish-American film director and actor in the early 20th century. He was born on April 26, 1872 at Evington House, Carlow, County Carlow, Ireland, and his birth name was William Cunningham Dean Tanner. He was one of five children of a retired British Army officer, Major Thomas Kearns Dean Tanner, of the Carlo Rifles 8th Battalion King's Royal Rifle Corps and his wife Jane O'Brien. Taylor's siblings were Dennis Cage Deanne Tanner, Ellen Nell Deanne Tanner, Fado Phillips, Lizzie Daisy Deanne Tanner, and Oswald Kearns Deanne Tanner. God. Yeah, the Irish in their long names. Seriously, I would not, I would not want to be the doctor writing that birth certificate name. One of his uncles was Charles Kearns Deanne Tanner, the Irish Parliament, Parliamentary Party Member of Parliament for Mid-Cork. Um, from 1885 to 1887, Taylor attended Marlborough College in England. In 1891, he left Ireland for a dude ranch near Runnymede, Kansas. Okay, then. There, Taylor became reacquainted with acting, his first experiences being at school, and eventually moved to New York City. While in New York, Taylor courted Ethel May Hamilton, an actress who appeared in the stage musical Floridora under the name Ethel May Harrison. Hamilton's father was a broker and investor in the English anti uh, antique store on Fifth Avenue, the antique shop, which eventually employed Taylor. The couple married in an Episcopal ceremony on 7 December 1901 at the little church around the corner, and had a daughter, Ethel Daisy, in 1902 or 1903. Taylor and his family were well-known in New York society and were members of several clubs. He was also a heavy drinker, possibly suffered from depression, because obviously this is before depression was an actual clinical diagnosis, um, and was known to carry on affairs with women. Lovely. Very, again, very common back then in Hollywood. Taylor suddenly disappeared on October 23, 1908, deserting his wife and his daughter. After his disappearance, friends said he had previously suffered mental lapses, and his family thought initially he had wandered off during an episode of amnesia. Taylor's wife obtained a state decree of divorce in 1912. For those that don't know, a state decree of divorce is basically a non-contestable decree. So, um, when, cause normally for a divorce, you have to have both parties agree to the divorce. Well, with him missing, 
he can't agree to it, so the state allows her to get divorced, and the state agrees on his behalf. And also, this being the really early 20th century divorce, unless I'm mistaken, divorce wasn't even... Consent to, consenting divorce wasn't even legal in New York. I think at this point there's only one place in the country where you can really get a divorce, and even in this time period I'm not too sure about, so this is really the only way she could get divorced from him. Yeah. Little is known of the years immediately following Taylor's disappearance. He traveled through Canada, Alaska, and northwestern U.S., mining gold and working with various acting troops. Eventually he switched from acting to producing. <clears throat> By the time he arrived in San Francisco, California, around 1912, he had changed his name to William Desmond Taylor. In San Francisco, some New York acquaintances met him and provided him with some money to reestablish himself in Los Angeles. That's crazy. I mean, he just disappears, like, out of the blue, and he's just traveling through the... I mean, this is still pretty much frontier country yeah. in, in, at this point in time, and... Oof. I mean, you gotta wonder, was it real? Did he, or did he just want to get away from his family? I think he just wanted to get away from everything. Nobody has that long of an amnesia. Yeah. Thing. Um, so Taylor's initial film acting was in 1913 for the New York Motion Picture Company, releasing under the brands of Bronco and KB. His earliest known screen appearance was The Counterfeiter. He then acted for Vitagraph Studios, which no longer exists, including four appearances opposite Margaret Gibby Gibson and Balboa Amusement Production Producing Company, which does not exist anymore. At Balboa, Taylor met actress Neva Garber, with whom he became engaged until 1919. Garber later recalled he was the soul of honor, a man of personal culture, education, and refinement. I have never known a finer or better man. Taylor began directing films in 1914, beginning with The Judge's Wife for Balboa. After leaving Balboa, he directed two films at Favorite Players Film Company and then American Film Manufacturing Company, where he directed most of the 30-episode serial The Diamond from the Sky. In in October 1915, he joined Palace Pictures. A year later, Palace became a subsidiary of Famous Players Lasky. Except for a month working at Fox Film Corporation in 1917... All of Taylor's subsequent films were directed for Famous Players Lasky or its subsidiary companies. This is amazing, just kind of like seeing all these older film companies. I mean, most that people don't realize exist exactly. Most people don't. I mean, this is when the film industry was really being born. So everybody was built was making film, opening their own film companies. Actually, I don't even think at this time MGM was even around yet. MGM, Paramount, those weren't even around until. 20s or 30s, I believe. Um, So around 1915, Taylor made contact with a sister-in-law, Ada Brennan Deanne Tanner, wife of Taylor's younger brother, Dennis. A former British Army lieutenant and a manager of a New York uh, antiques business, separate from Hamilton's, Dennis had also abandoned his wife and children, disappearing in 1912. Ada and her daughters moved to Monrovia, California, where Ada could be treated at the Pottinger Sanatorium for Tuberculosis. Um, Ada's sister, Lillian Pomeroy, was married to the sanatorium's physician in charge, Dr. John L. Pomeroy. This would become public after Taylor's murder, and the press descended upon the little town of Monrovia. 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 The whole family seems to have this habit of just pulling up and leaving. Yeah. Jesus. 
Uh, towards the end of World War One in July 1918, Taylor enlisted in the Canadian Expeditionary Force as a private. After training for four and a half months at Fort Edward, Nova Scotia, Taylor sailed from Halifax on a troop transport carrying 500 Canadian soldiers. They arrived at Hounslow Barracks, London, on 2 December 1918. Taylor, oh, go ahead. Looks like he missed it. Yeah. Taylor was ultimately assigned to the Royal Army Service Corps of the Expeditionary Forces Canteen Service, stationed at Dunkirk, and promoted to the temporary grade of lieutenant on 15 January 1919. That's a huge rank jump. Jesus. He went from being a private to a lieutenant in a year. Wish I could do that. In, actually, not even a year, in two months. I really wish I could do that. Jesus U.S. Army, please promote me. At the end of April 1919, Taylor... Uh, reacted his final billet at Burgess, France as Major Taylor, Company D. Royal uh, Fusiliers. Fusiliers. Um, half of this shit doesn't exist anymore. No, no, the, the British military and the Canadian military have gone through so many reformations yeah. that... More than we have. Yeah. Upon returning to Los Angeles on 14 May 1919, Taylor was honored by the Motion Picture Directors Association with a formal banquet at the Los Angeles Athletics Club. For what? I'm not trying to take anything away from anyone's man's military service, but he literally just got promoted to major and was in charge of the mess. Yeah. Hey, good for him. He enlisted. A lot of of people didn't do that. He didn't even see war. Yeah. uh, After returning from military service, Taylor went on to direct some of the most popular stars of the era, including Mary Pickford, Wallace Reed, Dustin Farnham, and his protege, Mary Miles Minter, who starred in the 1919 version of Anne of Green and Gables. By this time, Taylor's ex-wife and daughter were aware that he was working in Hollywood. Boy, yeah, he's a big fucking name. Yeah. In 1918, while watching the film Captain Alvarez, they saw Taylor appear on the screen. Ethel responded, that's your father. In response, Ethel Daisy wrote Taylor in care of the studio. In 1921, Taylor visited his ex-wife and daughter in New York City and made Ethel Daisy his legal heir. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's nice. Hey, honey. So, about that milk I'm rich. I went, Yeah, it's like, about that milk I went out to go grab. At 7.30 on the morning of Thursday, second, uh, Thursday, February 2nd, 1922, Taylor's body was found inside his bungalow at the Alvarado Court Apartments, 404B South Alvarado Street in Westlake, Los Angeles, a trendy and affluent neighborhood. A crowd gathered inside and someone identifying himself as a doctor stepped forward made a cursory examination of the body and declared Taylor had died of a stomach hemorrhage. Not possible to what? know. Not possible to know. The doctor ne- was never seen again, and when doubts later arose, the body was rolled over by forensic investigators, revealing that the 49-year-old film director had been shot at least once in the back with what appeared to have been a small-caliber pistol, which was not found at the scene. So, some random dude just shows up. He says he's a doctor. He looks just briefly at him... And by all accounts, from what this is saying, he wasn't his stomach wasn't even facing up. He's uh, yeah, he died of a stomach hemorrhage. Bye. Well, even if his stomach was facing up, stomach hemorrhage that's internal. Yeah, there's, there's no way he could see it. No, like that's kind of odd. Yeah. So Taylor's funeral took place on February seventh, nineteen twenty-two, in Saint Paul's Cathedral. After an Episcopal ceremony, he was interred in a mausoleum at Hollywood Cemetery, now named Hollywood Forever Cemetery on Santa Monica Boulevard. The inscription on his crypt reads, In memory of William C. Deanne Tanner, beloved father of Ethel Deanne Tanner, died on 1 February 1922. 
Um, you that's actually open to the public. Anybody can go visit that. Yeah, a lot of very famous uh, uh, celebrities and filmmakers and industry, industry are there. I believe that Maryland's there. Um, a, a lot of a lot of big names are there. Um, so for the investigation. In Taylor's pockets, investigators found a wallet holding $78 in cash, which would be about $1,300 today, a silver cigarette case, a Waltham pocket watch, a pen knife, and a locket bearing a photograph of actress Mabel Normand. A two-carat diamond ring was on his finger. With the evidence of the money and valuables on Taylor's body, robbery did not seem to be the motive for the killing, but a large sum of cash that Taylor had shown his account the day before was missing and apparently never accounted for. After some investigation, the time of Taylor's death was set at 7.50 p.m. on the evening of February 1st, 1922. While being interviewed by the police five days after the director's body was found, uh, Minter said that following the murder, her friend, director and actor Marshall Nealon, had told her that Taylor had made several highly delusional statements about some of his social acquaintances, including her, during the weeks before his death. She also said that Neelan thought Taylor had recently become insane. In the midst of media circus caused by the case, Los Angeles under Sheriff Eugene Biscaloos Biscaloos warned Chicago Tribune he's dead now so it doesn't matter <laughs> warned Chicago Tribune reporter Eddie Doherty the industry has been hurt stars have been ruined stockholders have lost millions of dollars a lot of people are out of jobs and incensed enough to take a shot at you. According to Robert Garreau the studios seemed to be fearful that if certain aspects of the case were exposed, it would exacerbate their problems. King Vider said of the case in 1968, Last year I interviewed a Los Angeles police detective, William Michael Cahill Sr., now retired, who had been assigned to the case immediately after the murder. He told me we were doing all right, and then, before the week was out, we got the word to lay off. Hmm. So... One thing to understand about this time period, like the studios, even though the film industry is new, relatively new at this point, these guys made a lot of money really fast. They were able to grow in influence. And plus, this really catapulted Los Angeles from basically a, not quite a frontier town, but made it a lot bigger and a lot more affluent than it was. So these guys were able to hold a lot of sway on there. So it's not really surprising that the cops are being told to basically back off on this murder investigation because there's probably a plethora of other stuff going on that probably has nothing to do with the murder, but it's going to get exposed. Yeah. So getting into suspects and witnesses. Suspect number one, Edward Sands. Edward F. Sands had prior convictions for embezzlement, forgery, and serial desertion from the U.S. military. Born in Ohio, he had multiple aliases and spoke with an affected Cockney accent. Okay. Yeah. Sands had worked as Taylor's valet and cook until seven months before the murder. While Taylor was in Europe the summer before 1921, Sands had forged his name on checks and wrecked his car. Later, Sands burgled Taylor's bungalow, leaving footprints on the film director's bed. Following the murder, he was never seen or heard from again. Interesting. Now, there's Henry Peavy. (laughs) Henry Peavy, who replaced Sands as Taylor's valet, was a person who found the body. 
Newspapers noted that PV wore flashy golf costumes but did not own any golf clubs. Three days before Taylor's murder, PV had been arrested for social vagrancy and charged with being lewd and dissolute. According to Robert Garreau, even though the police decided after severe questioning that PV was not the murderer, the Hollywood correspondent of the New York Daily News, uh, Floribel Mior, came to a private conclusion that PV was the murderer. In that era of ingenious women reporters, Mior thought she could engineer a scoop by tricking PV into a confession. She knew from the movies that blacks were deathly afraid of ghosts. With the help of two Confederates, uh, Frank Carson and Al Weinshank, she offered PV ten dollars if he would identify Taylor's grave in the Hollywood Park Cemetery, which she had already visited. Weinshank had gone on ahead with a white sheet, and Mior and Carson drove PV to the site. Weinshank, who came from a tough section of Chicago, spoke with accents of a hoodlum. When he loomed up in the sheet and cried out, I am the ghost of William Desmond Taylor, you murdered me, confess PV, Henry laughed out loud, then cursed them roundly. Unfortunately for Muir, she was unaware that Taylor had a distinctive British accent. Weinshank, as Muir, revealed in her memoirs, not only spoke like a hoodlum, but also was one of the alleged Chicago mobsters who was later gunned down in the infamous St. Valentine's Day Massacre. Really? And then in 1931, PV died in the San Francisco asylum where he had been hospitalized for, hospitalized for syphilis-related dementia. Oh, where do you even begin to unpack this thing? This is like... We've got racism, we've got probably the most harebrained scheme of all. Yeah. Holy crap. And a Chicago monster. Yeah. Who would later be dead? Um, next is Mabel Norman. Mabel Norman was a popular comedic actress and frequent co-star with the Charlie Chaplin and Roscoe Arbuckle. Uh According to author Robert Garreau, Taylor was deeply in love with Norman, and she had originally approached him for help to cure her cocaine dependency. Based upon Norman's subsequent statements to police investigators, her repeated relapses were devastating for Taylor. According to Garreau, Taylor met with federal prosecutors shortly before his death and offered to testify against Norman's cocaine suppliers. Garreau believed that those suppliers learned of the meeting and hired a contract killer to assassinate the director. According to Garreau, Norman suspected the reasons for her lover's murder, but did not know the identity of the triggerman. On the night of the murder, Norman claimed to have left Taylor's bungalow in a happy mood at 7.45pm, carrying a book he had lent to her. She and Taylor blew kisses at each other as her limousine drove away. Norman was the last person known to have seen Taylor alive, and the LAPD subjected her to a grueling interrogation, but ruled her out as a suspect. Most subsequent writers have done the same. However, Norman's career had already slowed, and her reputation was tarnished by revelations of her addiction, which was seen as a moral failing. (laughs) Oh, if only they know what was to come. According to George Hopkins, who sat next to her at Taylor's funeral... Norman wept inconsolably throughout the ceremony. Ultimately, Norman continued to make films throughout the 1920s. She died of tuberculosis eight years later on February 23, 1930. According to her friend and confidant Julia Brew, Norman asked her a few days before she died, Julia, do you think they'll ever find out who killed Bill Taylor? Which, deathbed confessional, she would have said it was her. Yeah. I think. I don't... I, I, find, I would find it very hard that she was... 
putting on that ruse for so long till death. Yeah. I also find, although on the other side, I find it very unlikely that a cocaine dealer would try and kill somebody because he's going to lose a customer. Well, then yeah, again, this is who the tr- customer is true. Customer I mean, is a big time in Hollywood. That's yeah. a lot of money. Yeah, that is true. That is so, true. So, Faith Cole McLean, the wife of actor Douglas McLean and oh. neighbor of Taylor's, is widely believed to have seen Taylor's killer. The couple was startled by a loud noise at 8 p.m. McLean opened her front door and saw someone emerging from the front door of Taylor's home who, she said, was dressed like my idea of a motion picture burglar. She recalled the person pausing for a moment before turning and walking back through the door as if having forgotten something, then re-emerging seconds later, flashing a smile at her before running off and disappearing between the buildings. McLean thought the loud noise she had heard was a car backfiring, not a gunshot. She also told police interviews that the person looked funny, like movie actors in white face makeup, hmm. and speculated that it may have been a woman disguised as a man due to the person's height and build. I mean, could be. It's certainly really bizarre. Yeah. A, a motion picture burglar. That means they were wearing uh, all like black, a, all black striped masks. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, yeah, they didn't have ski masks back then, so it might have looked like you know, maybe like the little eye shield thing. That's so. The next one is Mary Miles Minter. She was a former child star and teen screen idol whose career had been guided by Taylor. Minter, who had grown up without a father, was only three years older than the daughter Taylor had abandoned in New York. Love letters from Minter were found in Taylor's bungalow. Based upon these, reporters allege that a sexual relationship between the 49-year-old Taylor and 19-year-old Minter had started when she was 17. Ew. But, think about it now. So this is obviously really bad now, but back then, it was common to get married young. It it, 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 it was very common. I it mean, was. I mean, even in the 80s, I mean, my, my aunt married my who was my uncle, they're divorced now, but they got married when she was 16 and he was 26. Mm. This one, though, I think the scandal really is this, is that he basically groomed her. Because that's yeah. really what it looked like. He, oh, groomed, yeah. he groomed a young, underage girl to, her, not just her career, but obviously to be his lover. Yeah. And, that's, and so I'm sure that's really where the scandal came from. So Garo and Vidor, however, disputed that allegation. Citing Mintner's own statements, both believed that her love for Taylor was unrequited. Taylor had often declined to see Mintner and had described himself as too old for her. However, the similes of Mintner's passionate letters to Taylor were printed in newspapers, forever shattering her screen image as a modest and wholesome young girl, and she was vilified in the press. Mintner made four more films for Paramount Pictures, and when the studio failed to renew her contract... She received offers from many other producers. Never comfortable as an actress, Mintner declined them all. In 1957, she married Brandon O. Hildebrandt, a Danish-American businessman. She died in Santa Monica, California on August 4th, 1984. She had a long life. Yeah. The next is Charlotte Shelby. That was Mintner's mother. Like many stage mothers before and since... She had been described as manipulative and consumed by wanton greed over her daughter's career. Mintner and her mother were bitterly divided by financial disputes and lawsuits for a time, but they later reconciled. Shelby's initial statements to police about the murder 
are still characterized as evasive and obviously filled with lies about both her daughter's relationship with Taylor and other matters. Perhaps the most compelling bit of circumstantial evidence was that Shelby allegedly owned a rare 38 caliber pistol and some unusual bullets, uh, which were very similar to the kind that had killed Taylor. After that information became public, she reportedly threw the pistol into the Louisiana Bayou. Hmm. Shelby knew the L.A. district attorney socially and spent years outside the United States in an effort to avoid both official inquiries by his successor and press coverage related to the murder. In 1938, her other daughter, actress Margaret Shelby, who was suffering from both clinical depression and alcoholism, openly accused her mother of the murder. Shelby was widely suspected of the crime and was a favorite suspect of many writers. For example, Adela Rogers St. John's speculated that Shelby was torn by feelings of maternal protection for her daughter and her own attraction to Taylor. Although Shelby feared being tried for the murder, at least two L.A. County District Attorneys publicly declined to prosecute her. Almost 20 years after the murder, Los Angeles District Attorney Buron Fitz concluded evidence was insufficient for an indictment of Shelby and recommended that the remaining evidence and case files be retained on a permanent basis. All of those materials subsequently disappeared. Shelby died in 1957. Fitz, in ill health, died by suicide in 1973. Hmm. Suicide. Yeah. That's some Jeffrey Epstein suicide. Yeah. yeah. Um, Margaret Gibson. So, Margaret Gibson was a film actress who had worked with Taylor when he first came to Hollywood. In 1917, she was indicted, tried, and acquitted on charges equivalent to prostitution, along with allegations of opium dealing. Opium was very big in the early 1900s. Oh, yeah. Especially in Hollywood. After which, she changed her professional name to Patricia Palmer. In 1923, Gibson was arrested and jailed on extortion charges, which were later dropped. She was 27 years old and in Los Angeles at the time of Taylor's murder. No record of her name was ever mentioned in connection with the investigation. Soon after the murder, Gibson got work in a number of films produced by famous players Lasky, Taylor's studio at the time of his death. Shortly before she died in 1964, Gibson reportedly confessed to murdering Taylor. Hmm. Deathbed confessions. Yeah. So, there was a lack of evidence. Through a combination of poor crime scene management and apparent corruption... Much physical evidence was immediately lost, and the rest vanished over the years, although copies of a few documents from the police files were made public in 2007. Various theories were put forward after the murder, and in the years since, many books published claiming to have identified the murderer, but no conclusive evidence has ever been uncovered linking the crime to any particular individual. So because so many of the celebrities mentioned in the Taylor case were familiar to the public, through their movie performances, this was the first American murder in which so many people felt such a personal interest. Public interest in the case resulted in stories about the Taylor murder selling more newspapers in the United States than ever before. Anti-Hollywood sentiment peaked in the weeks before the Taylor, uh, following the Taylor murder, with editorials uh, campaigning Hollywood to all the uh, licen- licentiousness that marked the Roman times of Caligula, Claudius, and Nero. Jesus. Our American Sodom and Gomorrah, and surrounding the call to destroy Hollywood. Other editorials characterized Taylor as a crafty, cultured villain who got what was coming to him 
and urging every weapon available should be used by all the forces of the law to defeat the conspiracy to cover up Taylor's case. Yeah, the, around the, most people don't seem to know that around this time that there was actually, like, equivalent to, like, um, a moral backlash to Hollywood. And not... Not too dissimilar to other such movements that you will that you see other American history. Just uh, the decadence, you know, tabloid gossip, tabloid newspapers were becoming really a thing around this time, and there were other sensational cases like the the, case, the trial of um, Roscoe Fatty Arbuckle, his alleged rape and murder of a young starlet, um, which he was uh, he was found not guilty, and he he. In, in truth, he didn't actually commit the crime, but um, there, yeah, there was definitely a moral outrage against Hollywood at this time. Um, I mean, honestly, this sounds like a case that was cold from the from the word go. There yeah. was you had one witness who described what was at best sounds like a movie extra killed him, you know. And you have some rando who just showed up and said, "Yep, he's dead," and ran away. They fought, and it takes them how, however long to just turn the body over and realize, "Oh, he was shot." So I think it's the mother. I I tend to agree too. She disappears, mm-hmm. refuses to come back into the country. The witness said that they look like a female dressed as a male. She is mad that her daughter is so interested in Taylor. Plus, she probably had a thing for Taylor as well. She definitely sounds like one of those persons who wants to latch themselves onto a very famous person, get their daughter in there. A stage mom, as as we've seen it, you know. Um, I tend to agree, too. She, of everyone's actions here, she seems the more she's trying to evade. You know, and... The fact that the prosecutor, the district attorney, just happens to commit suicide. Even though he's in health. Yeah. In 1973. So, So. I mean, I tend to agree that too. And and also, like we said um, earlier, like Paramount's executives, which um, this would have been around the time when Paramount first start open. Like yeah. they wouldn't even have been open for about less than five years. They're scrambling. They're what many describe the executives having free range of the home while police are investigating. They're taking evidence away from there that supposedly has nothing to do with the murder. But we have well, I mean, we'll never know. Um, and all in order, all in order to avoid scandals of everything. Because remember, William Desmond Taylor was—he's a director. He's very connected. He knows everybody. He's worked with everybody. So yeah. he would probably, in theory, have some kind of—I don't know if he doesn't. He never really struck me as like the blackmailing. Like they said, they described him as a villain type. But I feel he probably had a few. <laughs> Maybe a few compromising photos of everybody at, at at parties. Who well, knows? He he was just somebody that just like most people in Hollywood at that time had their demons. Oh yeah, and we think to, and today we think of um 
are the celebrities today and all their some of their antics are bad, but I mean honestly, they had nothing on these guys. This, this real one thing I do agree with. It really was like a Sodom and Gomorrah. They just had just a wanton, abandoned, hedonistic. I think the uh, I don't know about the whole Caligula and Nero and all no, that, no, but. no. It, take it, folks, take it from someone like me who is a major history buff and a f- huge fan of the Roman Empire. Nobody, nothing we do today could probably compare to what those three did. Holy yeah. crap. So, um, obviously this is a short episode There's because there's not much that we know about everything because it was covered up. And, of course, police, ta- police um, investigation tactics being what they were back then and it, today the Los Angeles Police Department is probably one of the more well-trained, well-funded police forces. Back then these guys might as well have been the freaking Keystone cops. Yeah. I mean, it's crime scene 101. You don't unless you're a cop or an investigator, you don't or somebody with like a forensic team, you you don't go into a crime scene. Yeah. It's just not done. Um, and you're letting film executives in there. Yeah, but I uh Unfortunately, we'll never know what happened to William Desmond Taylor. Um, it's been covered up so much, and evidence is all gone. Um, so, I, uh, yeah, I mean, like I said, this is a really, really short episode compared to what we normally do, but this is part of the series we wanted to do, and there's not much known on William Desmond Taylor and everything that happened. But yet, he is one of the more enigmatic figures. His death is probably is just as enigmatic, but he, the man himself, was enigmatic. I mean, yeah. from a fairly well-to-do Anglo-Irish family to suddenly get, climbing the ladder of New York society, and then he suddenly disappears to basically become a wandering bard. To use D and D terms, as we all like, was Caleb and I like to do. He basically becomes a wandering bard in the wilderness, and then he ends up in the the upper echelons of Hollywood. I mean, yeah, it, I forgot. I mean, heck, his own fa- his own family didn't even know where he was until they watched him in a movie. Yeah, so um, that's Desmond Taylor. So. Um, we will be, we have a another couple episodes that are going to come out, and then we will be taking our official break for the holidays. Um, but I will say that with this coming out today, uh, we want to wish everybody a happy Thanksgiving. Yes. Um, enjoy your time with your family. Uh, have a great Thanksgiving. We still will have an episode come out Saturday um, next week. But, yeah, enjoy Thanksgiving with your family. And uh, we will see you guys on the next one. So, we want to thank you for visiting the Scarlet Tavern. Remember to turn in your glasses, push in your seats, and as always, tip the bard. Good night, everybody. Good night.